Thanks for joining us and welcome. This is Tom Siri. I'm the founder and CEO of Real Self. And this is the Hey Siri podcast. And that's Hey Siri, S-E-E-R-Y, not S-I-R-I, which is the other Siri. I've chosen to reclaim my name that Apple tried to steal from me. I really am excited to be sharing the insights that we're gathering at Real Self as well as the insights that I pick up when I'm doing my job, either speaking to consumers, doctors, industry. And I really just want to look for things that go outside the echo chamber, get those details and findings that hopefully make you a better business owner or maybe even a better person. Who knows? Eva Shea, welcome to Hey Siri. Welcome. To Real Self University. Oh, touche. It's our first crossover episode. Yeah, that's true. This is the first time we've done a crossover episode. Anyway, I want to thank you for spending time on Hey Siri. And Eva, you've uh, worked with me for, well, a millennia. In internet years, definitely. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. We've worked a long time together. And one of the things that you and I've talked on the podium about and shared a lot of passion around is online reviews. And today I would love to dig into that. Here to lay some greatest, here we are in 2020. But I believe we were speaking at ASAPs over a decade ago and we were saying probably pretty similar things about how to think about online reviews and the significance of them. That's a good memory because nobody really knew who we were when we did that. I didn't know myself. And we were so little and your real self was so small. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an image that I've never let go of from that presentation, which is the guy holding the phone and taking a selfie because it reflects the way the consumer thinks about the internet in general is they want to see themselves reflected back. And so often I think we forget that that's what's happening on the other end. And reviews are a big part of that, but really everything on the internet is a big part of that is that you're constantly out there looking for yourself. Totally. And, you know, I, I get reviewed on a site called Glassdoor and I used to tell doctors, well, just get over it if you get a negative review. And then when I get one, I'm like, ooh, this is what I've been <laughs> telling people to get over. And it's hard. It's a reflection of myself, you know, and I, even if I disagree with it, I have to accept that there is some form of truth inside of each posting. I think what else is missing from the equation is empathy. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of people don't really understand how painful it is for doctors to be reviewed like that. And for the most part, they're pretty private people. And so we're used to seeing the ones who are more willing to be out there, but that's not the majority. The rest of them are much more willing to just stay home and take good care of patients. That's actually interesting because the distortion of social media is that this there's, we, we're, we're sort of, wow, these doctors are really out there, very open, very interested in engaging consumers in direct conversations. But I think you're right. That's a small portion of the overall populace of, of physicians, mm-hmm. medical experts. Distortion is the right word for sure. Prior to coming back to Real Self, I've been back at Real Self for yeah. four years, yeah. but I was here with you at mm-hmm. Real Self in 2007 and eight. Mm-hmm. And it, There's things that haven't changed at all, and there's things that have changed a lot. What hasn't changed is the way that consumers need information and what they need when they're making decisions. And I think we've stayed true to the core of that all the way through. What has changed is the size and the scope 
of what's available to them on the internet, and it's just gotten more overwhelming. You've spent lots of time working with Real Self on Real Self University education, building content for doctors and practices to really learn from our insights and best practices that you and others have picked up in areas like how to generate online reviews, how to have a strong social profile, et cetera. But tell me about yourself pre-us meeting each other over a decade ago. Yeah, that journey has been really interesting and I think speaks to how interesting this space is in general, that it just keeps changing. Mm -hmm. It's always interesting. It never gets boring and that's why we're all still here. And it, it has something good behind it. And in a space that can sometimes be a little bit dangerous for regular people trying to figure things out, that I think a lot of us feel like we have an obligation to protect the public by getting the right information and trustworthy information out there. And so you've told me once, and you want good doctors to do well as well. They shouldn't lose out. They need to be set up mm-hmm. to, to be seen and to be successful without having to scream louder than, right. the, than the bad guys. So the first thing I did was build a directory, and I fell into it backwards. And that was about 2003, before doctors even had websites. And the reason we built a directory was because we had six customers, all of whom were LASIK surgeons, and we had figured out how to make them number one in Google. And it was very easy in 2003 because there was no competition. So if you built your site right, you know, and if you had six of them and they were all the same, you could actually decide for yourself, I'm going to make this one number one. But what happened was those six LASIK surgeons kept getting mad at us and saying, how come that guy's number one? I want to be number one. So we sort of scratched our heads and said, let's make one site and put them all on it. Mm-hmm. And that that was really my first project. It was called Texas LASIK. <laughs> so after that, we built another directory and we made it wider and broader and that had all procedures on it. But a lot of procedures were just being invented too. So what would happen was we would see a trend, like something would be on TV and then our traffic would blow up. And I think what was super informative for me figuring out how to connect doctors and patients at that time was if I had a page that said, for instance, Thermage had just hit the market and it was huge because of Oprah, someone would call my office when we didn't have a doctor because we put our phone number on the page when we had a hole, like because this was our strategy. If a doctor saw the page, they would call us and say, can I have that page? And we'd say, sure, it'll be this many Mm -hmm. dollars or whatever we were doing. But what I kept hearing was what the patients were looking for in their own words. They would just tell me. So then I would go, hmm, I'm going to write a page about that. And then the whole thing started snowballing, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I look back on that and I think it was those phone calls from patients that informed the way that I wrote the content because I knew what they were asking for. And I can't imagine today how much harder it is to draw that direct connection. Like it just was super easy back then because the internet was so much smaller. But even what you're saying, the front line, that person who is in the staff picking up a phone call may oftentimes be the most insightful, most important individual in a practice in terms of your online marketing strategy because they're the ones who take and field the questions, the queries, mm-hmm. and and the emotions that are behind that and really could do a great job in shaping, hey, we get this question five times a day, maybe we should have a page. You know, we, I was speaking to Dr. Portries here in town and he's decided to publish all of his prices on his website. 
And guess what? His staff has now shifted away from having to answer every single call that says how much you charge for rhinoplasty to let's set an appointment or how far out is doctor booked? And and those are the responses they're providing versus kind of working around the lack of information on the internet. You're kind of giving away one of my best secrets. Oh, sorry. So, you know, I have We can park. You want to park that or you want to give it away now? (laughs) Let's give him a nugget, go ahead. <laughs> I, it, it's such a hard thing for doctors to get their heads around that I think the ones who do and the ones I've convinced to do this have seen in the data then how helpful it's been. And I also know from other work that I've done surveying patients that when people are prepared for the price ahead of their consult, they're twice as likely to schedule. That's an important point. Say mm-hmm. that one more time. When they're educated about the price before they show up for their consult, mm-hmm. they know what the range is going to be. They know what to expect they're twice as likely to book surgery on the spot. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so when you know that, when you believe that and you implement processes to make that happen by doing things like talking about price on the phone with every caller, putting it on your website, just making it out there in the open, you're setting yourself up for a much higher success rate when people come to see you. I think the math behind what you said is something I'm just still stuck on, which... But real stuff, we have entire teams of engineers, product individuals looking for how to increase conversion on things like registration on the site. And if they get a tenth of a percent increase, they're pretty excited. You know, that's that's a meaningful improvement and it's incremental and they keep working for those incremental wins. If we had something that had a 2x impact, wow, we would just be just blown away. I just want to put extra emphasis on that because I think it just skates past in these conversations when we have with doctors or you do in educational efforts around Real Self University, that it sounds like a number like, uh-huh, two hex, but that's just a massive difference in ROI that a practice gets from all their work to try to attract the next best patient. So whatever objections you have to sharing your prices, what I usually suggest, because I, I am a big fan of baby steps is Try I thought it. you were going to say you're a big fan of babies. I like babies too. <laughs> but baby <laughs> steps, baby steps and doctors seem to go well together because yep. some of these things are so ingrained that you have to give them like a window and say, I think you should do this, implement this for 60 days mm-hmm. and let's track. Yeah. But in order to be able to do that, you have to have the right tracking in place too. So that sort of takes me down another road, which is tracking and conversion tracking and having the right data to be able to make smart decisions. And I have a really good friend who I kind of refer to her as the secret weapon in the industry. She, No one knows. She's very quiet. She sort of flies under the radar, but she's super data-driven and comes from some of that same background that, that I do in previous work. And she recently said, you know, everybody says they're data-driven, and they are data-driven, but an anecdote can trump all the data and they'll They'll run with the anecdote. Mm-hmm. And I thought about that for a long time and I've seen it recently. That shiny, shiny object syndrome is something exactly. that I remember back when I worked for Expedia that my my boss even talked about that. You don't fall for that thing that is the next shiny object and get distracted from the hard work around things. Like I mentioned, this incrementality that's required to improve conversion step by step, as you point. Baby steps indeed is the right mm-hmm. framing, I believe. And so when you're doing a baby step project, like, can we get our conversions to go up by sharing prices ahead of time? You can use paper. 
to figure that out for 60 days. You don't have to say, we don't have software for that. Mm-hmm. And I just was working with a doctor who was going through a transition from one tracking system to another, and they weren't getting any call tracking. Mm-hmm. And I had to say, why don't you write it down until you have it figured out? And it was sort of like, oh, yeah, we can just write it down. It's not that overwhelming. Why is it a binary decision where I'll speak in front of doctors just like you will, and I will see hands in the air saying, no way in heck am I going to post prices on my website or share that information on real self. But I internally think, gosh, wouldn't you want to test it and just see if your hypothesis is true that it would lead to these negative things? But is there something in the psychology of the of the business owner or is it just something I'm, I need to be more awakened to? I think you're right in that there's a lot of dogma. Dogma, that's a good word. It's not a fault of theirs, but they want to operate. They don't want to do data analysis. They want someone to tell them here's what's going on, and they want that information to be truthful and easy to understand. And so I don't think it's a it's a personality problem. I just think it's a it's both a systems problem. What would Marcus Lemona say on the profit? It's not a people problem. It's a process problem. The three P's, I believe. People, people process, process and something. So with product, product. They have a great product. They have a great product. I love alliteration. Yeah, and uh, and great people, but they often don't have a great process, and that's where the hard work comes in. But once you set it up, it completely changes everything in the way that you look at. You know, Ryan decisions. Miller was at a conference that I spoke at, and he's the principal behind Aetna Interactive. He's a great teacher too. He is. He's fantastic. And one of the talks he just gave was, I think something he's just been shifting his talks from, here's little anecdotes and small bits of information or tips to fundamentally, do you have a strategy for your practice, for your marketing, for your overall business? Do you have a plan? Because from that stems, what are the right actions to take? And I almost look at his talks as the inconvenient truth talk. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of hard to really make progress unless you know what your guiding star north is. And we at Real Self, you know, we use a mission and vision statement as a starting point. We have values that the team aspires or adheres to. And we have clear objectives and key results that we set every quarter to keep people moving the right direction and hit the right objectives that grow the business or are meant to grow the business. And I think that's just the rigor and discipline under there is something that maybe is hard for a small business to really absorb. And I have empathy because it it takes time away from what you just said earlier, running a practice, hiring staff, and just doing the procedures themselves. It seems to be 99% of the effort and it required. And then that 1% around, let's call it marketing, ends up being either outsourced or something that, hey, give me the quick fix. Mm-hmm. I've always been sort of a turtle marketer and not a, a hare marketer or a rabbit marketer mm-hmm. in that I like to set things up the right way from the beginning and have a foundation that builds. And that often conflicts with, I need patience right now. Yeah, and I guess that's the the challenge. And your message isn't very popular if you're saying patience discipline, doing the right things, the quick answers maybe aren't there. 
when they get into a, a downturn, like for instance, mm-hmm. late summer, we know from our seasonal trend data that, and I always knew this from practice website data too, but at scale, it happens as well, that traffic really peaks around Memorial Day and then it starts declining and it really hits a bottom at the holiday season. And so what you'll see happen a lot is, oh my gosh, the schedule is empty. All of a sudden, you know the schedule is empty because you're looking at it, but this happens every year. So how come we're not better prepared for it when you know that it happens every year? And then they'll want to throw $15,000 at Google ads and say, let's get a whole bunch of patients. Mm -hmm. The fundamentally misunderstanding that Google ads aren't how people choose doctors. Mm-hmm. So it might get you a little more attention and it might drive a few more leads through. But then what happens down the line is those leads come through. And if you don't have the right tracking in place, you don't know if they actually converted. Mm-hmm. So you may just be throwing money out the window. And that that's what I feel so protective of doctors for in general and always have is I don't want you to throw your money away because I think you can do smarter things with it mm-hmm. and connect in better ways. One of the things that uh, going to one of your passion areas that you work on at Real Self is what I believe you named Real Self University. And what I have learned to really appreciate about those programs that you've created with other experts, both in internal to Real Self, but also subject matter experts outside of the company has been, it's not centered just on the doctor, but you're very passionate about empowering the staff and helping the staff make decisions based on insights that you provide. And then from this, I want to segue into online reviews, but I just want to talk about the significance of staff. And you clearly believe that, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I maybe is the heartbeat of the practice and our ability to execute on any of these strategies that we can talk about. Always. They're the front line. They're the first. They're like the place where the patient crosses over from the virtual to the real. So they go from the internet to, I'm finally going to try and reach out and make this human connection. And the first person they talk to either makes or breaks that decision. It's amazing. It's it's that first interaction. It truly is about first impressions matter. Mm-hmm. And what is the backing you have for that view? Like, how do you know a patient isn't affected by other, like, oh yeah, that grumpy front desk person or that delightful front person? Like, uh, how do you know that's so impactful? Well, one of the ways I know, (laughs) it's actually a little bit of a silly way, but if you think way, way, way back to 2003 when I was answering the phone myself, the other thing I was doing was writing content. Mm -hmm. And the way that I wrote content because there wasn't any other content on the internet to read, like there were no procedure pages. The, this None of this existed. I had to go to the doctor's office to get it. And the way that I did that was I would grab my laptop and I would park myself in the lobby of a doctor's office and I would listen to them talk to patients all day and I would write content from that. So that's one of the ways that I know that the front desk makes or breaks it is because I've sat there listening to them make or break it with my own ears. But then also in surveying, in the surveying world, you can see data points. And the work that I was doing prior to coming back to real self was covered 60 touch points from the moment of connection to past completed surgery. So in we terms had a of, sat- lot of measuring data. satisfaction across those 60 touch points. Right. So real self, we have this huge gold mine of data that gets you all the way to the office. The and what I had mm-hmm. in that job was what happens when you get to the doorstep and beyond. Mm-hmm. So it's like this beautiful marriage of data across the entire journey. And I have that all 
stored in my giant head. <laughs> right? Well, that's what we're trying to get into right now. Yes, there's a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I assert that you're right. I just was asking more from a, how do we go beyond the anecdote that the front desk reception, that first experience, that first, it actually could be not even the phone call. It could be simply the click to the website and- It could be the autoresponder. Yeah. I like where you're going, Tom, because this is sometimes referred to as micro conversions. Mm -hmm. There's all these itty bitty little tiny places where someone could decide I'm going to keep going or no, I'm turned off. The zero moment of truth, I guess, is what I've seen Google call it. Yes. They have an amazing white paper about that. ZMOT. Oh, I didn't know it had an acronym. Of course it does. Of course it does. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I couldn't help myself. And if you think about that, we do this every day. You go choose a restaurant because of its reviews. And if you happen to read one that's recent, that's bad. Like if it's from yesterday, you're not going there. If it's from a year ago, you're probably going to go because it's a restaurant. It was a year ago. Who cares? Recency. I think we need to do more work around the impact of recency. Yeah, I think you've spoken on the podium. You've written papers about this. I've shared as well the significance of recency when it comes to online reviews. And I think having fresh content is something that's hard for those who don't live in the internet like we do to really appreciate. I have my own view of why recency matters so much, why I really will discount personally if I see a review that's over six months. But what do you think is behind that? What do you believe is underlying that human behavior to sort of discount or diminish the significance of content that, you know, really is still time stamped in maybe the same year, for goodness sakes. I think it's very hard to isolate recency and quantity. So let's say you have one review and that's all you have and it's from last week. Not very trustworthy. Let's say you have a hundred reviews and they're all from five years ago. Also not very trustworthy. But what we just inherently look for as humans is a pattern. Mm -hmm. And that pattern has to look trustworthy. And that has to cover a lot of time. It has to cover the procedure you're interested in. And it has to cover what's important to you. So am I looking for, here's really another really early example is, if you're going to have LASIK surgery, do you want the person to be warm and friendly? Or do you want them to be precise, technical, and a scientist? Well, when I think about my eyeballs... And the importance of my eyes, I don't care if you're warm and friendly. I want you to be Mm -hmm. a precise technical scientist who never screws up. So if you're nice to me, it's less important than are you super accurate. But most people aren't like me. And a a lot of research has been done around what makes a patient choose a surgeon. And every single time they come back and they say, he made me feel comfortable or she made me feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And That can't be replaced with technology. So everything we do around that moment has to support that moment. That moment cannot be replaced with an app or a virtual call. There still has to be a moment where you bond with the person who's going to do your procedure. But again, so what if my posts online about me are six months plus old? Why can't a person realize that not that much changes in a practice, these procedures are the same procedures been done for an eon. What is it about 
human behavior of saying that's not as helpful or maybe not as useful to basing those decisions on where to go. I'm going to give you another story instead of a data point because I don't have a magic data point for this particular Mm -hmm. piece. But I did have a very long-time client, probably a decade, that I worked with this doctor. And he was going through some hard times. And at, at some point, we had to really focus our strategy so that both his time and mine were used for the most impactful activity that would drive his business. And so we narrowed it down to two things, one reviews and two photos. And our agreement was he would post every case, he would write a description of every case, and that was his only job. And my only job was to make sure that his reviews were being gathered and then resurfaced to support the marketing. And what we saw over that period of time where we did no other marketing, we spent no money on AdWords, no money on Facebook, there's no other money being spent. All we were doing with those two things is rankings went from average to exceptional. He was number one for everything in a very difficult Mm -hmm. market. And the other thing that happened was his conversion rate went up. And I am certain that it was because of those two activities. And I... I don't think you could separate one from the other. I think the photos back up the reviews and the reviews back up the photos. But it was the volume and it was the consistency across that long period of time that resulted in the success of that strategy. I think one way to answer my own question, I I love that story. I think it's, I want to go there. But I, I think from my own consumption of content on the internet, I find... I don't know if you've experienced, but as a doctor, say you go on your app that hasn't uploaded or downloaded news stories. Like I have the New York Times app or the Wall Street Journal app. Sometimes the Wall Street Journal app gets stuck and it's a two-day-old article and I just, I won't even read it. Two days old. And it could be something about a company that you know just did its earnings call. So not a lot has changed in the last two days <laughs> since that earnings call. But there's something psychologically that makes me just discount the value of that information. And I would argue it's probably something that is manifested by our ability to take in 3,000 different channels of content. Netflix, we all know we can just sit there and go blah, 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 blah with the, with the uh, remote and just be going through thousands of choices. And we just have a, a really and hard time. make to- no choice. Yeah, and go, go to Amazon Prime and, and Netflix, go, well, what's over Netflix here? Netflix problem. <laughs> I read, uh, I think I told you this, people spend an average of 18 minutes a day trying to pick something on Netflix yeah. to watch. And I, I often look and look and look and then get mad at the algorithm because it's not showing me what, something interesting. I don't know why it's showing me what's showing me, and there doesn't seem to be a way to change it, so I just go somewhere else. It's this overwhelming amount of information creating low attention and, and this almost insatiable need for newness. And, and in terms of when you're talking about that story of the doctor who really saw incredible success by focusing on those two aspects of uh, lots of patient testimonial through reviews and tremendous amount of photos to demonstrate cases and the two in combined created a, a real win for that practice. And it seems pretty fundamentally simple. It but is. But, but I think you're highlighting something that maybe is overlooked where 
online reviews could be just seen as simply a star rating that's good doctor, bad doctor. And that's it. It's just a rating of the individual. That is only true when there are hundreds or thousands of reviews. Hmm. When there's only a few, like let's say there's 60. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's enough for me to say that five stars or 4.8 stars and 60 reviews is enough for me to say, okay. And you can see this on Amazon all the time. When you search for a product and it has 50 or 100 reviews, you scratch your head. When it has 5,000 and it's got 4.8 stars or over four stars, yeah. you don't even read the reviews. You just go, looks good. It's like safety in numbers, right? You, exactly. You're like, yeah, gaming happens. There's faking happening on Amazon platform, but boy, 5,000 positive postings seems quite insurmountable for someone to overcome the yeah. filters, the screening and so forth. So I want all practices to reach this point that I call the, what am I going to do with all these reviews place? This is a magical place where you have so many reviews that you have to do something to organize them better so that you're helping people find what they want faster. What is that point? Well, I think... I could certainly ask our data science team to help me find the number, but it's in the many hundreds. Mm -hmm. And I I think it might even be in the thousands. Mm -hmm. Wow. But it's a lot. And the good news is you can get that many reviews. And I've seen it replicated over and over and over in lots of different kinds of practices. So the way that I, and I, this took months to get to this point, and What's amazing about months of work is that I've been able to distill it all down into a very small, memorable piece of information. We know that about 70% of people will write a review if you ask them. So great, we got that out of the way. Think about how many patients you see in a given month or a year, and now you know how many reviews you can get, right? So let's say you see 1,000 patients a year. Mm -hmm. You can get 700 reviews a year. And so at this point, you're probably saying there's no way. So that's your denominator. Right. Yeah. But that's the goal, mm -hmm. 70%. So you have a goal. Now, how do we actually get that to happen if we know 70% will say, yes, I'll write a review for you? They're not unwilling. There's something else wrong in the process. There's friction in the process. Absolutely. There's a lot of friction in and the process. And where is it? What do you, what, do you want to describe that friction in terms of the highest to least maybe? Or sure. what is like the most pronounced point of friction that is keeping a doctor or practice from achieving that goal, which I think is a fantastic benchmark for a practice to set, by the way. I think it's in, There's very the helpful. There's the emotional friction, which happens with the person who's asking. And then there's the technical friction. So let's start with the emotional friction, which is somebody in the office has to ask and they have to be comfortable asking and they have to do it in a way that's not creepy and weird. So what I figured out was, and we've talked about this forever, but we never translated it to an actual tactic, is you have to get in touch with that pay it forward phenomenon and make it about other people. And the way you do that is by saying, have you read our reviews? Because that's a open-ended conversational question. When somebody says, and they all will, say, yes, I absolutely did read your reviews. Now you're able to say, then you know how much they helped you. Would you be willing to help others by writing a review yourself? So the question friction is out of the way now. That That's very fascinating. The, the psychology behind the ask really sounds like 
you have to make it relevant to the reviewer, the writer, and make them understand why it has greater importance than simply go rate me, by the way. I need help on Google or on real self. It's not about you. It's about them. And it's about them helping others. And we see women on real self helping complete strangers all day Mm -hmm. long. So we know that that that's completely within the personalities of women. I think you like to joke about men would never do this, but women will most of the time. Yeah, I I think this idea of coming together and trying to improve things is certainly more of a female trait. And thank goodness... Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about the technical friction because then what happens is, and I I see this a lot and we've heard this countless times, I always ask my patients to write reviews and they always say yes. So we know you're asking, but then they go home and they don't do it. So they're not following through. So then I had to scratch my head a bunch and go, why aren't they doing it? And again, I had to go into the office to figure out this problem. But wait, 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 Eva, people are busy. I mean, look, I'm sure I'm drinking a coffee right now. Hopefully the audience isn't hearing me gulping it down. (laughs) But I'm in Seattle. This is what we do. And they could easily have asked me, hey, write a review about us, please, on Yelp or whatever the platform they need help with or what they think is important. I'm busy. I don't want to write a review about my coffee or it's like, what's in it for me? Not much. So I'll say yes, but I'm going to take their little card they gave me, Mm -hmm. stick it on my desk It'll sit there for six months until right. I, the guilt is over and I'll recycle it. And we have tried every variation of card you can think of. The cards don't drive behavior. Mm. The cards are a tool mm-hmm. that go with the ask. But what I ended up recommending with the card based on what I learned was that when they say, I'll do it later, not, I'm kind of going out of order here, but That's fine. When, they, when they say, I'll do it later, then you give them the card. But what you want them to do And what you have to build into your process is you're asking at a moment that they're not running out the door. And I noticed this in my my own experiences and in sitting in offices that there's tons of downtime through an appointment. There's downtime when you're waiting for something to be mixed up, when you're waiting for a laser to warm up, when you're... Numbing your... Numbing cream. Great example. (laughs) And those are the moments where you want to build the ask in. And especially with metastatic patients, you don't ask them at their first visit. You ask the people who are back for their second one because, of course, they're happy. Mm-hmm. They came back. Mm-hmm. So that's usually what I recommend for non-surgical is wait till they're returning for something and have them write about their first experience mm-hmm. at a time when they're not running out the door. So then the other really, like the, the breakthrough here was to have them write it on their own phone. Stop messing around with, here's our reviews iPad, here's our computer, here's our kiosk. It isn't that they won't do it. It's that what device do you use in your everyday life that you're the most comfortable with? Mm -hmm. And that's your own phone where we're really going to get the best review and they're going to feel safe and secure on that device. It's very private too. Yeah. It's something they're holding. You can can help them get to the right place on their phone. Mm -hmm. And that was another barrier that we kicked out of the way was initially we thought, well, we being me, marketing team, everyone that was helping me kind of get to the right formula, mm-hmm. we thought, well, let's give them a, a short link and all they have to do is go to the short link and, and then that'll take them right to the place where they write a review. But it ended up being so complicated mm. that we sort of went, okay, duh, go to Real Self on your phone 
search for the doctor and click write a review because everybody knows how to do that. Mm -hmm. And then our in-office verification process sends a text to the patient to verify that they're real, and that happens on their own phone too. Mm -hmm. So everything just became really simple and self-contained right there in that in that own device. So just to recap, ask them when they're not running out the door, say, have you read our reviews to initiate the conversation? Have them use their own phone, find your profile by going to Real Self and searching for it, and then let them be, get them started and let them go once you know they're in the right spot. And that's that's the winning formula. And when we see people follow the steps, their reviews increase 40% within the first month. What about giving a financial benefit such as write a review, get $100 off your next procedure, whatever it may be? That's what... a really interesting question, Tom. You can't incentivize yourself. Like you mm -hmm. can't give your money to someone to write a review. That's actually against... FTC regulations. And you don't really want to anyway because it it ends up being, have you seen those reviews where it says like uh, contest sweepstakes? Yeah. Sweepstakes review, they end up being less trustworthy. Hmm. What you can do is say thank you. And I use my own dentist as an example all the time. And I was just in there the other day telling them how smart they were because they're the ones who clued me into this process was they asked me to write a review and I did it on something, Yelp or something, years ago. The next time I came back, six months later, they thanked me for it. I said, how did you guys do that? Hmm. They said, we wrote it in your chart. Oh. <laughs> and it, what it meant to me was they cared enough about saying thank you to me for helping them yeah. that they took the time to write it down. And I thought first, what a great consultant you have. And then I thought, wow, that's really smart. Well, I think that validation that reviews matter to the patient is really frequently overlooked, which is instead yeah. of fighting it and saying this is resisting the idea of reviews, I've seen practices embrace it like you just described and use it as a way, whether it's on their own website saying, look at these reviews, like the real self-reviews can be embedded directly into your own website with a simple widget but the example of they actually read them and know, hey, this is a patient, either satisfied or dissatisfied, but also responding to reviews. And I've been at many meetings where a doctor will say, or somebody will give the advice from the podium, don't respond to online reviews. And I oftentimes am not in a position to have an argument that that's bad advice, but you're the expert. Tell me what you would say to a practice about responding to reviews and when, how to, how not to, if at all. I think it's pretty basic. And my mom taught me to write thank you notes. And when someone goes out of their way to take the time to write a review about you or write a review about their experience in support of you, you really owe it to them as a human to say thank you. And whether you do that in person or in writing or by responding is up to you. But the power of responding online includes is that other people who are considering you will then see that you are a good person who says thank you when someone mm. does something nice for you. And I think it's really that basic. Well, okay. But what about the negative review? You have to respond to those too. And there's there's nuance to that because of HIPAA, but... It comes down to the same thing, which is showing that you care. Mm -hmm. And I think, I heard you say recently that Chase Lay did something. Mm -hmm. What was his recommendation? Yeah, I, I interviewed him for Hey Siri and his 
belief is that if a patient has a bad outcome, meaning they're dissatisfied for whatever factor, he encourages them to share that online and post onto sites like Real Self, as opposed to try to keep them, prevent them from, or not suggesting the right view. And he believes that's part of his brand is just a high, almost painful adherence to transparency. And I say painful only because it's like me saying to an employee who has stolen from the company, oh, make sure you write a glass door review before you forget what it was like to work here as we're firing you <laughs> or calling the police. This hasn't happened, by the way. I'm just using it as a scenario. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how freeing for him to just say, this is me. It's a freeing construct. Yeah. But on that negative review response, do you suggest just coming from a place of truth, which is, I do care about my patients. And if you're yes. dissatisfied, we want to hear from we you. We want to hear from you. Mm -hmm. we, we want to talk to you and we want to solve this. And just really coming from a place of caring about the outcome and making it right. Mm -hmm. Even if that person's individual story is challenging for you. And the other thing I will point out is if you get a negative review, the best and smartest thing you can do for yourself is nothing for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Just sit on your hands and do not react. Mm -hmm. Because the, the process you go through of thinking about a negative review from when you find it to when you actually make a good decision is not instantaneous whatsoever. It takes time and it takes thought and it takes other people to weigh in. So when you do get to the point where you're writing that response, you make sure two or three other people read it before you post it so that you're not actually throwing gas on a fire. Yeah, I think that is incredible sage advice. And, <laughs> and I, I think it applies to lots of things that we have in the workplace, which is, respond, avoid react, you know, stay away from reaction, go towards responsive behavior. And when you have that cleary eyed view that, oh, I can understand why somebody would arrive at this view. And let me try to address it. And when I get a negative posting on Glassdoor, which uh, unfortunately I haven't seen many, Actually, then in their case, they ask you as a poster to talk about pros and cons. So almost every positive review has some negatives associated to it. I really embrace the negatives and say, okay, what is it that we are doing about that? What is our own views on it? And I very directly address it and say, this is something that either is unacceptable and here's what we're doing about it or thank you for opening my eyes, or just being incredibly authentic about it. And an interesting little anecdote is, uh, and, and, and validation of why responding matters. And I think this is true for practice as much as for our business at Real Self. Four of the last five candidates for our job, and this is a hot job market, talent we're looking for is being competed for with Amazon, Microsoft. You know, we're in Seattle in the mecca of like technology companies who are paying fat salaries and benefit packages. And four or five candidates said they were impressed that the CEO of the company was responding to reviews on Glassdoor. Unprompted, they said that yeah. to you? Unprompted. Wow. They said this, well, they said this to our recruiter and yeah. she, because she wanted to let me know, keep going, keep doing it. It's working. Yeah. In terms of setting an impression that I think is accurate of who we are and how I behave as a leader, which is I actually deeply care about the people and making sure real self is a place 
that is an incredible opportunity for you in a career and that we make adjustments and changes when we're not doing things right, which is like a medical practice. And you're not always getting it right. And I think acknowledging that in, in a safe way without creating liability for yourself is, is something that Chase Lay and others have done. And I, I think that stands out in, in a world that's looking for moments of authenticity because in the heart of, of all of this is how do I build a path of trust to somebody I am going to basically either count on them for maybe my life, but for sure something that's very important to me, how I show up and look and, and, and appear. I know that those values, they're values that I share, but they're also values that I have tried to pull through to Real Self University mm -hmm. so that the practices who do engage with us on that level both understand our brand, but also understand really what's at the heart of all of that is connecting consumers in a way that helps them trust that the decisions they're making are good ones. And that isn't something that exists anywhere else in the mm -hmm. space where consumers are looking for doctors. That just isn't, it's not happening on Yelp. It's not happening on health grades. It certainly is not happening on, on many of the just quick rating sites. Mm -hmm. You've given some great tips and insights on how to think about online views, how to set a goal, how to overcome the objections, drive more postings, the significance of recency, lots of surface area we just covered. And I'm going to pull you a place where it's just a little bit negative sounding. I, I'm sorry to do this, but I, I know you can't stand it that there's probably, let's just keep it to three things you see continuously in patterns that practices aren't getting right when it comes to online reviews. There's, there must be some things that bubble up in your mind that are like, oh, you know, here's an audience listening to me. I just want to talk about three things. And maybe some of the audience members would say, ah, that doesn't apply to us. But, but I think there's a moment, just take it in, listen to these. Eva Shea is an expert in this, has seen these things over and over again. So start with the, if you want to start with the worst to the best, you know, the most pronounced or okay. you want to do a, your, your choice. I'll quickly stack rank them in okay. my mind. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I see is is not dangerous, it's just not strategic. Mm -hmm. And that's to spread yourself too thin. You see you only have X number of patients. And in surgical practices, we're talking about hundreds a year. And sometimes that's as few as 20 or 30 a month. You know, the, these are businesses that can survive on very small numbers of customers. So if you can only get X number of customers to write a review, you can't spread them all over the internet. You don't have enough. You mean, hey, patients, here's the 14 places you can post about our practice. Right. You know, rateme.com all the way through. And you're saying that's a bad strategy. It is a bad strategy. And there's two reasons why. One is those sites often don't show up in Google rankings. So if you search for yourself and you don't see them there, that's a very good sign that you don't need to worry about them mm -hmm. because no one's finding them anyway. The other thing I know from seeing the data over and over and over and over is those sites don't show up in doctors' Google Analytics. Mm. So they're also not sending traffic to you. That's a great tip inside of that, which is instead of just relying upon your own site search, which could be personalized and shares different results than another human, 
looking at your Google Analytics, which every doctor has the right and should be able to look through and see who is clicking through, referring to the doc's website. And if you see zero clicks from Mm rateme.com, maybe that is one that just has extremely low relevance in the world is your point. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a side note, but it has to do with trust also. And I, I had never looked at it from this angle until we were working on verification. Verification of doctors on our platform at Real Self. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So we were working toward Real Self Verified. So this was probably a year ago. Mm-hmm. And I was doing all this research to figure out, is there anything else out there that's similar to Real Self Verified? And what I found was I took the names of several doctors whose licenses had been revoked, never coming back, never allowed to practice again. And Across the board, all of them still had active live profiles on almost every site, including Google Maps, where it looked like they were still open and you could call and make an appointment today. So in my mind, there's no reason why that doctor couldn't still be accepting phone calls and taking patients with a revoked license because the sites weren't doing anything to protect the patient from knowing that. So that's the other reason you want to send your reviews to places that are trustworthy because... I think people, especially the savvier ones, they know where the data is trustworthy yeah, and where I it's think not. What neighborhood you're in, you know, what are you described by that website? Sometimes I've seen the label that they put doctors under is is almost offensive in terms of how they group doctors and you know, specialties and mix them together. So maybe it's a oral surgeon who's doing cosmetic work, doing breast augmentation is in the same listing as a board certified plus surgeon, which if you're an oral dentist, that might be great. <laughs> but why are you sending a bunch of patients to a site that's lumping you in with someone who doesn't have the same level of training and expertise? Right. So most of the that's sites are not advice. doing a good job pr- providing accurate information. Okay. So your your advice there, the number one thing is don't spread yourself thin. Mm-hmm. Find a site that or a couple of entities where you believe are important to your patients and and people who are considering you and researching. So what's your second? Wish you could have practices hear you and say, gosh, start doing this or stop doing this or continue. Yeah. The other one is not asking everyone. It's really simple and I touched on it already is ask every patient, Mm -hmm. ask in person, ask again with technology Keep asking. No one's going to get upset with you for asking. And the more you ask and the more that becomes an automated process, the the easier it is to generate reviews. So cherry picking is dangerous. And obviously there's always exceptions and there's people who you don't want to ask. But for the most part, it's a mistake to just say, oh, I'm only going to ask the ones I really know are happy. Mm-hmm. And the cherry, you, I would guess the term is cherry picking yeah. and curating. You do not recommend. You're saying... I don't. Just make it a standard operating process for a practice. You just ask. And yep. it's whether it's you or you being the doctor or you being a staff member, whoever it is, or an automated system, make sure it happens. Some doctors are really good at asking mm-hmm. and they're very successful. I would say that is the exception and not the rule. So for the most part, this is a staff process and they need to be incentivized and rewarded for asking, not for getting, for asking. Well, I think it is easily something that drops on the floor in terms of priorities. Look, your 
patient care is number one, safety, staff. There's a bunch of other factors in play. So I can relate to it falling to a lower. But I, I do believe that if a practice had sort of a dollar signs against every review's worth X amount yes. of dollars to their practice in marketing, they would say, wow, we just watched $7,000 of marketing value walk out the door today and we're never going to recover that, which is 70 people who could have written reviews or whatever the dollar amount is. It's, exactly. it's true driver of value back to the practice. I have an example in one of our courses of a journey review, which is also unique to real self where the patient can come back and update over yep. and over. And it, in the example I found, and there were hundreds of these, not just the one that I found, she had uploaded something like 50 selfies over three months and the review was just sort of sitting there until our team got a hold of it and decided to feature it. And then, so four or five months after it was written, it had something like 70,000 views in one week because yeah. we shined a big real self light on it. And that resulted in dozens and dozens of contacts to the practice mm -hmm. in one week that they were able to then turn into mm -hmm. actual business. So you don't always know what is going to happen today with a review six months from now or a year from now. They have a cumulative effect and that continues to grow exponentially. Okay, so third mistake of practice could make that you would love to see turn around. It's not entirely a reviews-related mistake, but it is the one that I am the most passionate about and that mm -hmm. upsets me the most because it means that the people who are helping the practice are not doing their job either externally. And so what I'm talking about here is tracking conversions. And the actual process of setting up the tracking of conversions in Google Analytics takes all of about five minutes. And I five see, minutes by the webmaster yeah. or okay. Yes, by the webmaster. So what I see over and over because I support the process internally here of helping practices look at their analytics independently of people who are charging them money for that is that almost nobody ever has this set up and it means that they have Why is no that? idea. I don't know. I'm banging my head against this wall. So if if I was in the business of creating websites for doctors and I would love them to understand what traffic, what sources are creating the most value. I want them to be smarter about their marketing, more informed. Why wouldn't I help them understand these conversion points and what is the the driver to conversion. So things like on the reviews become, wow, I need to do these all day, every day, as opposed to something I just think about when I get a, a reminder from Eva Shea. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's impossible to make strategic decisions without this information mm -hmm. because it is the one and only signal that says this is working and this is not working. Okay, so give my audience a tip on where they can learn more about this topic. So they, I think it's a little awkward when you go to a technology person and say, can you just set up conversions? And then they say, oh, no, you don't need that. Or we already have them set up. And you know how it's easy to dismantle when you're not a technology person. Where can they go to get informed to learn about what you're describing in terms of setting up your Google Analytics for conversion? Well, I think it's as simple as Googling it, actually, <laughs> uh, how to set up conversions in Google Analytics. But what you have to do before that is basically demand that you own your data and not someone else, not a third party. And so 
historically, now you all know I've been doing this since 2003, if you had your own Google account and you owned the data from the beginning, at this point you'd have 17 years worth of data to say this is the lifespan of my internet marketing and you'd have a wealth of information with which to work. But what really ends up happening most often is a company sets one up, sticks it on your website, doesn't give you access, makes you ask for it or only shows you on a screen share and is trying to hide something. And that that is a red flag that says this is not a company that has your best interests at heart. Mm. So what you should always require of any marketing company that you work with is it's your Google account, your analytics account, and you're sharing access with them and not the other way around. And I guess, you know, what we at RealSoft would love, and I guess you in particular would love to hear is what are the objections? So if a practice or a doctor hears an objection from a webmaster, bring it to you. How, how does somebody sure. reach you? Just could they send an email or... Always. Have, okay. The best one to use is university at realself.com. Mm-hmm. So even if I'm not here, someone's covering that address. Mm-hmm. And on university.realself.com, so that email address and the website are the same. There's a ton of educational material around asking for reviews. You know, I'll do, uh, I will also make the seat available in Hey Siri for an individual who believes that a doctor shouldn't have that data and information to be my guest. And, I would love to hear that one. And just really dig into yeah. the the why behind the diminished access to information or data. Let me just recap here. So we went through the three things, and I I would argue your third area of online reviews that you you wish practices would do better was more of a data-driven insight of how to just know what's working, what's not, and, and by virtue of that, seeing the significance of online views, whether they're embedded on your website or from other platforms. Is there anything else before we wrap up that you think is important to, to point out when it comes to online reviews and getting patients to share their true experiences with a practice? I think if I could add one more thing, it would be use your reviews in your other marketing. Mm-hmm. So let's say you're already pretty far down this path and you're doing a great job. The thing that reviews can uniquely do is provide that social proof that other people need to feel strongly about making you their choice. So if you are doing print or you're doing other online ads, there's a multitude of ways that you can draw people in to read your reviews and use those as a conversion mechanism to drive more leads into your practice. And it works every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've seen that firsthand. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so last question, and it's it's probably last but not least, is is there one data point metric that you believe is absolutely critical to for doctors to to think about or that you think about as like the the hallmark of success on the internet or success with your online marketing there are so many good choices <laughs> i'm going to give you a kind of a loopy analogy here which comes from the other side of my you know my non-work life which is that my husband's been coaching lacrosse for 12 years. We we are a lacrosse family. My dad is a lacrosse guy and my lots of people in my family grew up playing lacrosse on Long Island. And when he started coaching lacrosse, I volunteered to do the stats because, of course, I love putting numbers in the right place and seeing 
what happens. And over the years, I started to see that if I did it well, the data would tell me a story about the game. And you could look at the page and say, I know exactly what happened in this game. Mm -hmm. I can see who didn't do their job. I can see when the team was operating perfectly and firing on all cylinders. And there was one stat that always stood out that said, this is a team that's going to win. And that was not goals. It was assists. Because the game is played in a way that requires you to be good teammates. You cannot be a hot dog and win at lacrosse. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so I could see in the numbers, we had a hot dog game or we had a really good game based on assists. And so if I take that thinking and look at a website or a real self-profile or anything, the one that tells me I got the patient to move across the internet to the point of contacting the doctor is that conversion rate. And it it's in Google Analytics, it's kind of a, a number that doesn't feel like it makes sense because it's a good conversion rate for a website is something like three to six percent. It's not a huge number. It is not a big number. And you go three to six percent of what? What does that even mean? And so I I had a long time ago started translating that to a ratio. So if your ratio was 1 in 20 patients, contact the office. That is hot. I mean, that is a high-performing website. If it's 1 in 100, that's 1% conversion rate. That has issues, and we have to figure out where those issues are and watch the number to see if we're making progress against those issues or not. So I would say that that is the single most important number to look at is the conversion rate to know whether you're doing well or not. And the highest-performing sites in the world get about... Six and a half or seven percent, and yeah. the worst are half a percent or lower. Yeah, orders of magnitude. Well, thank you so much, Eva Shea. You're always insightful and transparent yourself, and in sharing your knowledge. And I, I appreciate you and your passion and how you've brought it to my audience and to your audience because we're doing this. The last thing is, where can people hear more of you? You have your own podcast. Mm -hmm. The Real Self University podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere that you listen to podcasts. It's it's widely available. And same with Hey Siri, all the same places. So if you're listening to Hey Siri, make sure you check out Real Self University and vice versa. If you're hearing this on Real Self University, go subscribe to Hey Siri and listen to all our new episodes from Tom over there. And everything is always available at university.realself.com. If you want to be a guest on either podcast, either Tom's or mine, just shoot a note to me at university at realself.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye. One of the parts of having a great conversation with my audience is getting feedback and listening to what's on your mind. And even maybe you want to be a guest. The best way to reach me is just send an email to heysiri at realself.com. That's H-E-Y-S-E-E-R-Y at realself.com. We look at every single message that comes in and respond. And if you have feedback that's positive, love it. Challenges, even better. Want to be a guest, even more delightful. So please get in touch with us. Want to know more from our audience and what's working, what's not.